I see we've got people filing in, so uh, welcome. Uh, find your seats, everyone. Very good. Now, I don't know if you think about national treasures much, ladies and gentlemen. I expect when you, we think of national treasures, Judy Dench, obviously, David Attenborough, Alan Bennett, though he hates the term, perhaps Joanna Lumley coming up fast on the inside rail. But my vote, do you know who the lady is who goes, I'll cast my vote in favor of, of course, Sue Johnston will be my nomination for National Treasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> because if you think about it, it's nearly 30 years since she's been a welcome presence in our living room on the telly. First of all, of course, creating Sheila Grant and Brookside, to that other mother, long-suffering Barbara Royal and the royal family, via perhaps not quite such a long-suffering lady, uh, Grace in Waking the Dead. What, 12 series of that? Ten. Well, 10 series of that. Plus, my favorite, or one of my favorite, Sue's portrayals of the lady with a uh, motor neuron disease, in effect, in Goodbye, Cruel Will, which I still think is one of the greatest dramas I've ever seen on television. Anyway, she's put it all into, between the covers of a book, Things I Couldn't Tell My Mother is the title. And by God, there's a lot she couldn't tell her mother. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from her sort of professional life, there are sort of cameo roles for Paul McCartney and Pat Phoenix and David Hare. So what was the kind of, what was the motivation in writing the book, Sue? What was your starting point? Um, well, good evening, everyone, and thank you for such a warm welcome. Very kind of you. Um, I, I spent the last few days, as I'm sure a lot of people in the audience, if they haven't already, may do one day, uh, at my mother's bedside in her the last few days of her life. And it's a very strange and... Um, intimate time and, and very moving. And in, in fact, it's a privilege to be there. And during the time, I've, I've spent so much time thinking through our lives together. And we talked when she was able to. And sometimes it was very difficult to find things to talk about. So I used to take photographs in um, and of her as a young woman, of us as me as a young girl, and holidays, and my son as a young man. And it used to stimulate her imagination, her memories, and we'd have, it would stimulate talk, and we'd talk about those holidays in the past. And I felt, particularly towards the end, that um, I'd practically written a book about our lives in my head by the end of this, these four days. And I thought, if ever I write a book, this is the premise that I would start from, because this is, um, this is the important thing, really. This, the life and death of my mother. And, um, and I even thought at the title while I was spending these lonely nights in this room with my mum, things I couldn't tell my mother, which I told my son the next day when he came in. I thought it was hysterical. <laughs> because I knew it just covered about everything in my life. <laughs> um, and I hadn't intended to write a book, and indeed it was 18 months before mm. anyone approached me to write it, so uh, it was all there in my head, ready to go bleh. I mean, tell us about your mother. She's a, she's a formidable figure in the book. Um, what was it, how would you describe your relationship with her? Troubled, tricky? Uh, all those. <laughs> yes. Why do you think it was that way? What were the reasons for um, this? Various, and I've given a lot of thought to it, and a lot of it's come out in my life. I think 
I have to say, first of all, I had the most wonderful childhood, and this relationship didn't develop until I started developing, if you like. Um, while she was my mother and I was her little girl, everything was yeah. fine. I think it was the moment when she sort of felt she'd lost control. Well, a, a big clue um, for me was when my mother... My mother loved it that I passed my 11 plus and went to grammar school. She was very proud of all that, and it was great. And, um, but la later in my life, she said, I wish you'd never been educated, and, which was amazing because that was what she mm -hmm. wanted for me. But she found, I realized that she felt it had, it had dropped a wedge between yeah. us. Um, that she never, she didn't know the daughter that I'd become. It was almost, I think, I don't know, I've thought and thought about it. It's like, it's when she'd lost control. Mm. When she brought me to London to drama school and said when, I, when she was leaving, my life's over now. Yes. You feel that she did live her life through me. She mm. didn't work, she was at home for me. And she genuinely believed that her life was over because I'd left home and gone, to London. Yes. <laughs> um, but a lot of women feel like that when the it's sort of empty nest syndrome. Yes, oh, she was totally. suffering from yes, that. Yes, yes. I do. And of course, people didn't talk about things no. as we do today. We all know today what empty nest, mm -hmm. nest syndrome is. But they, you know, they didn't. And, and also, I think what I realized was that my mother was one of 14. She was the third girl of 14, and the next one was a boy. So you sort of see, and then the older girls, my, my grandmother didn't stop working. She was a seamstress, and she worked from home, dropped the kids, <laughs> and the elder girls brought the kids yes, up, the and they did up. everything. And um, they'd come out of, they were born at the end of the First World War. Um, they were coming out of a Victorian mm. era, and so dealing with that. Then they went through the war. They, you know, that generation mm. um, had a tough yes, life, quite. a life that we couldn't comprehend, no. our generation, mm. um, who've had it all, almost, you know, we've had a wonderful, gifted life, the opportunities very, very that have been available to us all. There was nothing for mm. my mother's generation. There wasn't, you know, education if you were lucky or rich. Um, so I think that when I, it had never occurred to me to think, to weigh that up mm. against that would be how somebody would behave. It would influence them, yeah. and of course it does. And I mean, I think they, they took quite, I would say, easily to your life as an actor, though, I think, didn't, I mean, did you feel that they didn't actually, they may have disapproved, but they, did, they actually took quite a keen interest in what you were doing, which is what only you discovered after your parents had died. Tell us about that sort of you the discovering. Oh, well, when, my, when, um, when I had to clear my mother's house, which you probably know is an is awful thing after they've gone and you have to go and box up their things, um, possibly the worst thing you have to do really connected with it all. And um, I found in her room um, scrapbooks, boxes of scrapbooks um, of, my, of cuttings about me and programs when I was even in the amateurs as a teenager, and right through my career, all, it was all there. So she'd been squirreling it all away, and um, 
it was incredibly moving and um, I sort of wanted to say thank, thank you to her for that because she could never express that she was doing mm. that. She could never express that she was proud or that, um, that she loved me and, or anything. She was, you know, deeply introvert in yeah. so many ways. Yeah. But she did take pride in your achievements, as you discovered Oh, I don't later. know whether she did or not. <laughs> she, my dad did. Mm. And my dad was the guy who introduced, loved mm. books, um, read to me from uh, Treasure Island when I was a little girl because it was his favorite book. He loved Shakespeare. He loved um, Dickens. And mm. he was the one who really opened my mind to literature. Yeah. And yeah. he, uh, his ambition for me was if you're going to be an actor, then go to the, I'd love to see you at the Royal Shakespeare mm. Company. I couldn't, I didn't do that for him, sadly, but, um, bastards. <laughs> <laughs> but your mother, your mother fancied herself, <laughs> your mother fancied herself as one of the characters in, uh, in the Royal Family, Oh, my she? mother thought Nana was totally based on her. <laughs> um, because Liz Smith, the wonderful Liz Smith who played Nana, of course, had a wig on, this little grey wig that um, made her look very like my mother because my mother's natural hairstyle was that little grey wig like Nana. And there was an episode, the first time it happened was when we had an episode where I say to Anthony, get your Nana a, a china cup because you know she doesn't drink out of a mug, she wants a china cup. My mother was waiting the next day. <laughs> That was me, wasn't it? Because <laughs> I have a china cup. But her, my aunties all drank out of china cups. They had to be china cups. And not them beakers, china cups. And then it was about gravy. You told them I met gravy. Then she had a cataract. And the next thing, of course, <laughs> Nana has a cataract. So she was totally paranoid that I was giving secrets yes, of her life quite. to Caroline. So you didn't tell the writers of your <laughs> no. mother's misadventures at all. And it was very funny because... Um, this, that, that little grey-haired wig that Liz made, which was so, it's so clever, it's so... Uh, my mother, when, you know, when she was in her 80s, I was taken to Marks and Spencer's and she'd set off and I'd lose her. And I'd be looking round and just sort of slightly over all the rails of clothes. I'd see hundreds of little grey... <laughs> <laughs> these women in Warrington with the same head. Yeah, that's right, that's the problem. So let's talk about the, the acting. I mean, one, a very important part of your career as it was theatre and education. Now, tell us why you felt it was so important, that branch of the business. Um, well, I, I, I was working, I was unemployed and working at a, an art centre that had just opened called the Cockpit Theatre, which is in Marylebone. And um, I went in to watch the, the theatre and education uh, group working on the set text of Shakespeare, Macbeth, as it happened. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> and um, I'm on stage, it's all right. And, um, and I was amazed at the, their interaction with kids. And I've always loved working with, I would have been a teacher, I think, if I hadn't been an actor. And the thought of bringing that theatre as a method of kid, opening kids' minds to education and thinking and inspiration um, just grabbed me, and and so I, I actually joined that team. I auditioned for them and joined them, and then spent 11 years in theatre mm. and education, because what it also did was, you you don't only just do it, you research it, you improvise it, 
with a writer who puts the work together. So the involvement from the seed of an idea in a meeting to the fulfillment in a school hall um, and the feedback from kids was, I loved. Mm. I, I just found it so rewarding. I was totally engrossed in that for 11 years. Yes. Now, it wasn't that you were sort of teaching them about theatre. No, no. You were using no. theatre in their sort of general education. Yes, yes. For instance, um, one of the shows that bowled me over at the Coventry team, which I joined, um, was that they'd, in the 70s, of course, cowboys and Indians, we'd grown up with the myth, cowboy good, Indian bad. Uh, and so they'd chosen to kill the myth. So a cowboy went into six-year-olds and he did all the usual things and, said, and the kids were going, wow, wow. And then he said he'd got a real live Indian in, in the school hall. Uh, and he'd built up all their expectations, all the things that they were conditioned by. And then they went into the hall and the teepee was in a cage. <laughs> and the Red Indian was sat there looking incredibly fierce. And in fact, it was an actor called Clive Russell, who's six foot six. Yes, he's a big man. <laughs> and these little things <laughs> sat at the back of the hall. And uh, it was extraordinary that Tex, get, Tex the cowboy gets called away on the phone and leaves the kids in the hall alone with the Indian behind the cage. And the actor's job is, as that Indian, is to bring the kids to the cage and eventually to get them to let him out. And it was wonderful to watch, just wonderful, just from one word, you, and, you know, his, his English developed as the same. <laughs> First he can hardly speak and then they give him words and then, of course, he starts to, but except once, I, every time I watched it, because it was the most brilliant piece of theater, some brave kid would throw something over and then another brave kid would let him out and then they'd all retreat again. And then in the end, they'd all be on, it takes so them mm -hmm. buffalo hunts mm -hmm. and then they're in the middle of smoking the pipe of, pe <laughs> pipe of peace, having a wonderful time when Tex comes back mm -hmm. and they're in the middle, he draws a gun at the, uh, at the Indian. The Indian takes his tomahawk out and the little kids are in between. And then they're, they're told, the teacher says, well, you can vote either if you walk towards Tex, the Indian will go back in the cage and we'll say no more about, you know, that will be it. Or you can set the Indian free and he can go back to wherever he, Canada, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and um, every time they went as a, as a pack to the, to the cowboy, um, sometimes a brave child would go to the Indian, which was so moving, it was just unbelievable, uh, or a few would trickle mm. over. But in the main, and when the teachers always followed it up, it was very heavily followed up with teachers' workshops, they always said, he, well, he was the boss, he had mm. the gun, mm. and it's, um, it's the authority figure. Right, right. But it made them think that maybe Indians weren't, mm -hmm. but, you know, he taught them about their way of life. That's very long-winded answer. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I just wanted to sort of show you that it was the power of theatre. Mm. The kids believed those characters were real. And I think that that's where I learned to be a truthful actor, If I, you know, that I hope that I am. But if you're working that closely in character with a child, you cannot be acting. You cannot mm. be anything but yeah. totally real. And yeah. 
so that they will go on this wonderful journey with you and open their minds. And so that's why I loved it so much. So you've done 11 years in Coventry mm. and again in Bolton. So from that, run, you know, going around schools, jumping out of sort of vans, that kind of uh, <laughs> strolling player type thing, suddenly you were in everyone's living room as Sheila in Brookside. That must have been an extraordinary turnaround and very hard to come to terms with, I'd have thought. Yes, it was. I, 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 went, I did leave... Um, you get burnt out in theatre and education. Also, I'd had a child. Uh, I was a single parent. You didn't pay much money. So I thought, I've got to sort of try and get a career mm -hmm. now. Um, and I, I went into rep around Manchester. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then I, got, I did Coronation Street. I did three episodes of that. And then I was sent up for this new program that was coming on, um, which we all, none of us knew anything about. And I got cast as Sheila Grant, and yes, it was suddenly from having been an actor for 20 years, um, I was suddenly going, people were calling me Sheila in the street, and um, it was, it, it, it was very strange, and I, I understand how people can't cope with it in a way, because mm. I was 38, <laughs> and I found it very difficult, because it's like you lose your identity when people call you a character that mm. you play, not, the, or they'd say, why are you talking like that? Yeah. Why are you speaking like that? Why are you doing that? And um, I kept saying, no, my name's Sue. <laughs> I mean, I thought, oh, get a grip. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a They're going to say it, so you may as well get to, yes. you know, like it. And it's a tribute to your well, that's, I know. acting I know. skills as I know. well. But it was a shock. Quite. But you were there for eight years, am I right in thinking? Uh, as yes. She, yeah. So what kept you interested over that time? How do you keep I mean, sometimes the focus is on you, sometimes the story, uh, attention will be on other characters. What keeps an actor interested for that length of time? I think it's storylines and the people you're working mm. with. For the first five years, I didn't have a problem. I was happy as Larry. Also, I had a young child I had to provide mm. for, and what it had given me was an, a normal, if you like, job acting, um, because it was as near to a nine-to-five job, except it was eight till seven, as you could wish yeah. to get. And it was, uh, you know, it was in the Northwest. So to me, it was manna from heaven. It was like somebody was smiling down at me. I loved the character. I loved the storylines. I love Lucky Tomlinson. I know that's very hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I loved the Grant family. I loved the interaction. I thought, we, were, we had such a great ensemble mm. there, and the crew. It was just a, a joyous time. And then I started to get itchy feet mm. after five years and thought, I can't do this. But I, I did carry on. Came out to do a play of Jim Cartwright's. Uh, um, and then left again to do it yeah. again. Because I think once I had that taste of the theater, mm. I wanted to go back. And I... I got, I started wanting to be an actor again and do mm. different things. Because mm. um, it's interesting that you should spend all that time with Ricky Tomlinson in one <laughs> series and then end up married to him. I think that must be you know, a bit of a world record. I mean, are, are you the lunts of popular television then? No, because I've mm. been married to Alan Armstrong three times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What a, what a, how fickle you are. I know. Tell, but the relationship with Ricky is at, is at the heart, I suppose, of both Brookside and the Royal Family. Tell us about your, how you get on together. I mean, is it... Hate him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
he's well. He's a he's a great man. We had, in fact, we had uh, our differences towards the end of mm. his spell on Brookside, which you know he's written about in his book, and it's in that one. Yeah. Um, he went through a bad time in his life, and he was uh, he was finding it very difficult. He hated the storylines he was being given as Bobby Grant, and uh, he got very incensed and walked off walked off set, and um, it was all not very pleasant. So it was great. We actually worked together again in a film uh, before we did The Royal Family, which was great to re-establish yeah. our friendship. Um, because it did get tricky for a while. Um, but he is, you know, he, he then met Rita, his present wife, and she was, the, in the way, the making of him after this. Mm. He went through a very bad time. And he, Rita came along and saved him. And he'll tell you that. I'm not speaking out of turn. Yeah. And uh, although she bin-bagged him a few times, I have to say, <laughs> that's what he used to say when he had a night out. <laughs> Get home and bin-bag was outside and his clothes in. <laughs> I've been bin-bagged. Um, he is, he's, well, you look probably know, he's a fantastic character. And he's a very clever man. He's a, he, he, didn't read until he went to prison. He was a political prisoner for, um, uh, in fact, I remember when I was at Coventry Belgrade Theatre marching in a protest about yeah. his imprisonment, little knowing that I'd end up marrying him twice. <laughs> he was a very principled uh, man and he, while he was in prison, he started reading and he read The Ragged Trousers of wow. Philanthropist, which changed his life. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, he's just last year given a million pounds to children's charities mm. in Liverpool, um, even though he won't spend a penny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you're acting together, you know each other so well that it becomes... It's magical, yes. yes. It is that. It, it is, um, there is a joy in knowing an actor, and I have to say it's the same with Alan Armstrong, mm. too, that, you know, if you've worked so closely with somebody that you, you just relax, you, you haven't got to prove anything, mm. you can just be, and you're comfortable in, and you're not frightened of doing anything that will might, you know, you know you can just mm. go with it, you know, there's no um, restraint. Did you think the Royal Family would be the success it turned out to be when you read the scripts and kind of had that, the first episode? It was very difficult to judge the Royal Family scripts. Ricky rang me when we'd been sent them and said, what do you think? I said, I don't know. Because there wasn't a lot of dialogue, there no. was just a lot of pauses. And, um, <laughs> and uh, he's, I remember Ricky saying, it's either going to be on at 12 o'clock at night or a huge success. Yeah. And we, he said that all the way through. And none of us knew how it would be until it came out. And it, it was a surprise how amazing people found it. I mean, they liked... And, uh, not everybody loved it. I remember I was, I was making a, a teleseries with David Threlfall, and he came in, and of course it was it had just gone out, mm. and, it, and you know it, people were loving it. And he came in and went, "I don't get it. Sorry, love, but I don't get it." And um, so there were people, and there are still people yes. who've never got it or never or hate it, you know. And that's always going to be that's life. But the major, it was mm. it's been huge, really, for. Um, on a ratings basis, and the love of it continually, and um, and so lost my track. Well, is it senior because, moment? Is gone. it because you know 
the family do love each other, despite the kind of I think people, arguments well, they have, that we, we love them loving each other, in a way. I think, I think so, because you'd be surprised mm. at the sort of people who say, it reminds me of my family, and you think, <laughs> really? <laughs> um, and, but what they're talking about is that love mm. and that comfortableness yes. with everybody, and perhaps father mm. ruling the roost in the mm. chair and the, with the... Well, also because these days when people have got computers and televisions all over the house, the family doesn't really get together as we no. used to do no. to watch the same thing. Well, I don't yet, you wouldn't see the royal family on the computer, would you? Well, no, no, well, only Anthony now. Anthony, but yes, exactly. But the, the other people would be doing their own thing, as it were. Yes. But you all come together to watch whatever yes. it is is happening. And they, they do, you're right. They do genuinely love each other and there is... Uh, there's a joy in that. It's and something the sort we all of want. faux documentary approach <laughs> means that you don't have to do anything that much, in a way, this, in a strange... And there's not a lot of acting going on in that, that sofa, is there? So it has the kind of reality. <laughs> <laughs> there might be the odd smoke, the odd chocolate or something, but you're basically slumped in front of the television. So it's not all action, is it? No, it's not action, it's <laughs> acting. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> Lots of thinking going but you on. Don't, it doesn't look like acting. It doesn't look like acting, look that's like my acting. point. I know. And because, of the, because of the yeah. style. And a lot of people think that there's a lot of improvisation mm -hmm. going on, but there isn't any. It's, you ha every word has to be known, which freaks Ricky out, because <laughs> we like to go... <laughs> um, it has to be precise and... Even those pauses have to be, the beats are given. Mm. And that's the genius of Carolina Hearn, yes. that knowing and the observation. I mean, we, we used to go, how can, you know, I remember one scene where I have a packet of polar mints and I go, it's Ricky's birthday. And you, you think, how stupid, you often go, this is so stupid. You go, would you like a birthday mint? <laughs> He takes one, and then I, I, Grant Nana's one, I have one, <laughs> Caroline, David, and Anthony, and then the camera just goes round, and we all just sit watching the telly, sucking this mint. <laughs> it goes right round till it gets to Anthony, who bites it. <laughs> and we're all appalled. And, and sort of, it's very difficult when you first get presented with a script that does that, mm. to think how that can possibly work especially as you've never had anybody watching telly and commenting on telly, as if yes. it's what we all do anyway. Yes, I right. mean, lots of people do it now, mm. but even in soaps, people didn't used to really watch television and comment on mm. it. No, quite. Um, so, yes, it was, it was a shock, but you sort of had a feeling that it was different enough to be something yes. special. Are there going to be more? I mean, you've done some Christmas specials and things, haven't Well, there was supposed to be a Christmas special last year, but they left it too late right. and they didn't get it written. <laughs> so that will be done this year. This Christmas, yeah. yeah. Good. So, yeah. excellent. Now, tell us about Waking the Day, because that was a character very different from uh, Sheila, very different from Barbara, a woman who knew what she, you know, knew what she was about, wasn't afraid to voice her opinions. And that, again, what was the appeal for, to, to stay with a character over 10 series? And that's a lot of your working life taken up with that? What kept you going? What kept you interested in that? Um, I think working with Trevor yes. Eve, um, very much so, because um, it was the reason I took the job in the first... We did a pilot first off, and um, 
And when I knew it was Trevor, I, I really wanted to work with him. I'd seen a lot of his theatre work. And I, um, I loved the idea of it. Nobody had offered me, really, in, on television, anything that was mm. that straight before. Yes. It was really, I was really offered northern mm. parts and, and mums and that sort of part, which I don't mind. But, you know, it was wonderful that somebody saw uh, that maybe I could do something more serious. Mm. And uh, so it was all mixed up with that and the money. Yes, that helps. <laughs> and, uh, and the scripts, really. And, and in that first series, when there were no cold cases then, it, this was the first mm. uh, time anyone had used. It was only just police hadn't set up cold case units. It was just coming into the Met. And uh, and they hadn't. People were beginning to use profilers and the DNA uh, scientific, the forensic scientist stuff was coming in. The opening up of cold cases because of the development of DNA processing was uh, just happening. So Barbara Macon, who uh, developed it, was straight onto it, and she devised this program. So it was very initiative, and it was had great. You know, it was it was before it was new and it was a uh, novel if yeah. you like i also think one of the great attractions for me about it was the thorny relationship between grace and boyd played by trevor mm. i mean they were sort of they were natural combatants in a way but they kind of respected each other at the same time do you want to enlarge on your thoughts on that um i think it sort of happened um gradually uh it would be interesting, I suppose, I should watch the first series and see what, mm -hmm. how it did develop. I can't remember whether it was in, but what we found was very much that it was, it was quite a tricky series to write for a writer because there were so many elements, mm. um, police, forensics, uh, um, psychology, all of it. And so sometimes they would just be factual and you'd get a factual scene to play, that just pouring over the facts to move the action on. And we hated just doing that, so we started slowly just improvising around it. I remember one scene where Trevor said, I know what, I was just running in through mud in that last scene. How about you come into the office and I'm washing my feet? <laughs> but out of that would develop, mm -hmm. we did that. And we did it, and you go, you know, there's all sorts of nuances you can play. If somebody's got the bare foot stuck up in front <laughs> yes, of you, it's not wonder. quite the norm. Um, <laughs> And we would try always to find, and in the end, the writers started letting us have our heads in a way. They started saying, you can, oh yeah, you've got to get from fact to fact, but feel free yeah. to do whatever you like. <laughs> 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 always dangerous, yes. Right. Um, but I just found that, I found the scenes with him and I so exciting, mm. such a challenge as an actor and kept me on my toes, mm. and um, hopefully I did him as well. But, and out of it grew this relationship through Boyd and um, Grace, where I, m my attitude to him was just, he's a seven-year-old angry boy, <laughs> and that's how he should be treated. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, one of the downsides of playing Grace was, and you say in the book, all these complicated psychological <laughs> states that she has to, yeah. all the, the, the verb, the jargon that she has to come out with. Yeah. And your colleagues didn't make life easier for you, did, no, did no. they? Well, they didn't, and they didn't help 
um, Holly Aird when she was playing the forensic scientist or Tara Fitzgerald either, because she also used mm -hmm. to have a, a diatribe of words. <laughs> and with, I mean, actors are the cruelest people because mm -hmm. they knew when it was coming up that you'd have this long, and of course you get this looking, you obviously get this looking, I was thinking, oh, oh, it's coming now, I've got to say this, oh, I'm going to dry, I know I'm going to dry, I won't remember it, oh. Dried, and they're all laughing, you know, they just don't help, you know, because they're all going, ah, you're not going to remember it. And then you have to try again, mm. and again, and again. Um, and there was a very funny incident once when um, uh, I'd, I'd, I was in the West End show called uh, Play What I Wrote, and they'd done a special evening of, uh, for Prince, Prince Charles's charities. And I went down to uh, the after party, and I went into the room, and Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French were sitting at this table. They went, oh my God, we've been doing you all day. They've been watching Trevor and I because they were about to do us <laughs> on the French and Saunders show. So they'd been watching us all day, and I said, well, watch what we do with the specs because <laughs> we started writing stuff. When we get into the end, when we'd have two weeks in all those office scenes, and you're learning lines, and scripts are being rewritten, they're coming at you, and you think, oh, I'll just write it on this file. And then you go, da, 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 and you put your glasses on, and you put your because we're both a bit short of eyes. <laughs> so, of course, when they did the sketch, the glasses were coming on, and the glasses were coming on. <laughs> anyway, sadly, ladies and gentlemen, I have to sort of call a halt to proceedings, but Sue will be signing copies of her work, and indeed the paperback version rather than the hardback, so even more of a bargain than it was before. And she'll be signing copies up in the Littleton Circle for you, so perhaps we'll see some of you then. As ever, Sue, it's been a real treat to meet you Thank again. You. Ladies and gentlemen, let's show our appreciation for Sue Johnson! Yeah.